0: So if you've are, if you been with us now for several weeks, we are studying the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bible, you can open with me to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look at just two verses today, just two. Uh, you might think that would mean it would be short. It will not be. <clears throat> because the Word of God has come to challenge us today. And you'll see what I mean when I read these verses. It has come to challenge us. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Let me read it. It says this. It says, Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So those are our two verses today. Go in peace. <laughs> so I was gonna address you know, this whole, what's called this whole household section where it talks about children and parents and it talks about servants and, and how you should think about those things, these relationships that are most intimate in our lives. Um, and I was gonna try and tackle them all together and I just got to work on it this week and I just thought, no, I really just need to talk about husbands and wives. I just need to do this. And we'll come back next week. I've kind of adjusted schedule. We'll talk about these other relationships in the following weeks. And you know that we're committed just walking through the scriptures as we move through books of the Bible. And so we come to this text today and it's a challenging one and we'll address why that's challenging. But... Um, just to kind of set the scene, here's what's been going on to kind of give us our context. Remember as we've been in Colossians chapter 3, in the first four verses, what Paul really did, he said you you have a new identity, those of you who are in Jesus, in Christ. You're something new. You're not this old thing that you were. And he really was almost saying to us, I want you to think about yourself in a new way. So it it was really almost a statement about how those who are in Jesus should think about what they have when they have Christ and this new identity that they have. And then he began to tell us the implications of this new identity. And in the following the section that immediately followed that, like verses 5 through 11 or 12, what he said was because of this new identity, there are some things that you have to start putting off, things you have to stop doing. He talked about sexual immorality. Uh, He talked about a number of different things. He said, you need to stop doing these things because it's not who you are anymore. It's not compatible with this new identity that you've been given as a follower of Jesus. And then what he did after that was, if you remember last week, what he said was, then there are some things you need to put on. In particular, there's ways that you, as followers of Jesus together, need to love each other. You need to be humble towards one another and patient with one another and and generous with one another. So we saw all these commands about things that we both put off and the things that we put on. And so these relationships within the church and what they're supposed to look like and how we're supposed to love each other, that's what we talked about last week. And we're still under the umbrella of this idea of the new identity that we have in Jesus. And now what he's going to say is, because of this new person that you are, if you've come to Christ, there's a way that you should live in your marriages and there's a way that you should live as parents and there's a way that you should live in your household that is different than how you lived before, and so that's where we find ourselves today is in this challenging text in Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 and 19 where Paul says wives now having turned from this church collective how do we treat one another now let me talk about your roles in your marriage and let me say wives submit to your husbands that that's fitting in the lord husbands love your wives don't be harsh with them, which is a very short way of saying what he says in a little bit of a longer way. If you want to get the longer version of Paul's thinking on this, go to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning of verse 21, down through the beginning of chapter 6, where he essentially elaborates on this, where he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And he says, wives, submit to your husband, essentially as the church submits to Christ. Now, these verses are challenging for a number of reasons, and I actually want to talk about that a little bit. But what what I want to say is that here's the way people in the church in our day and age, anyway, typically encounter these verses, and they encounter them. I think often as a bit of a source of embarrassment, is that they they come across them, and they seem so out of place in a modern world uh, that they just simply see, and perhaps even seem like verses that can be used to oppress. Uh, and to belittle, and to demean, and to abuse, and so they are verses that we either kind of try to ignore, just to act like maybe they're not there, uh, or perhaps we look to try and make them say something other than what they seem to plainly say. Uh, we look to try and figure out how verses like these can fit in a, in a modern world, and I want to talk about that a little with you, and, and I want to offer you this thought. Our job is to let the scriptures speak authoritatively to us. It's to let the scriptures tell us what to believe, not to bring our beliefs to the scriptures to tell them what we want them to say. Now that said, here's what I want to do today. Here's kind of the outline, right? First, I want to talk about four reasons why I think these commands are really difficult, why they're challenging, and why often we look for ways to reinterpret them to say something other than what they seem to say plainly, which is essentially this. That there are roles that God has prescribed in marriage for husbands and wives. That husbands are to be the head of their wives and that wives are to submit to their husbands and be their husband's helper. And that those are based upon our masculinity and our femininity. They are not uh, roles that are to be reversed or switched around. And I think that there are reasons why, if that's the plain teaching here, there are reasons why that's challenging. And I want to talk about that first. Then I want to talk about why they're actually good commands. Why we can actually believe that these commands are good. Because here's really the, the thesis of the sermon today is this. Is that believing and obeying these commands will lead to thriving and joy for you. That believing and obeying these commands, in spite of how it may feel, in spite of your experience perhaps, that believing and obeying these commands can lead to, and I believe will lead to, when they are both obeyed, husbands obeying and wives obeying these commands, submitting to these commands, that they can lead to a type of joy that you can't have if you reject them. And so my hope is some of you perhaps have seen these and, and put them aside or uh, thought that they mean something different than what they mean. And, and I want to encourage you that there's, there's a joy here in the commands of God. All of God's commands are joyful for us. Is that, do we, can we start from that premise? All God's commands are joyful. If we rightly understand them, not misinterpret or misuse them, but if we rightly understand them, God's commands are joyful. And I believe there's a joy to be found in these commands. And I want to tell you why. So I want to tell you why I think these are good, why these are good commands. And then the third thing is I want to talk a little bit about how do do you apply this? How do you live this out? How do you practically, you know, put this into, into practice? Uh, If you are not married today, obviously there's a couple things you can do. You can hopefully see that this may apply at some point in the future if you are to be married. But I wanna argue too that even if you are never married, if marriage never becomes part of the equation for your life, I wanna argue that there are some things that God is saying about masculinity and femininity here that are deeply important. And church, hear me on this. I think our ability to live out commands like these in the bond of marriage is perhaps one of our most powerful tools for helping the world see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ because our world is very confused around the subject of gender right now. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of hurt all in this area. And the church needs to understand the beauty of marriage painted, the picture of marriage painted by God and live in that, live in that. And in living in it, I believe, uh, while not being very palatable to the world around us, I believe it will speak something very uniquely beautiful to the world around us uh, when the Holy Spirit perhaps gives eyes to see. So that's our pathway. Why is it challenging? Why is it good? How do we live it out? So let's talk about those three things, can we? So uh, the first, why is it, why is it difficult? Why is it hard? What are the objections? So let me Let me address what some of you may be thinking and feeling, perhaps, I I hope maybe I've done a good job of thinking this through. Um, I've I've certainly done a lot of study and a lot of reading uh, and these seem to be common objections when people encounter this text uh, along with Ephesians chapter five. The first one is this, is that men have used the first of these commands that wives should submit to their husbands, husbands is men have used them to abuse women. And let's just be really, let's just acknowledge that. And the first thing we need to own is that these commands, the first one in particular, have too often been used to uphold cultural traditions that are not actually a fulfillment of this biblical command, They have been used as a power play by husbands over wives. They have been used as a power play of men over women in general. And I do want to remind us here very specifically that it's very important for you and I to understand that this command applies to wives and to husbands, not to men and women in general. Do you understand the difference between that? It does not say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. These are very specific commands within the covenant context of marriage. And so because that's been the case, because look, I could give you no shortage of examples on ways that men have used this, this command in an inappropriate way, and every time it is inappropriate, to demean, to degrade, and to abuse and it is never acceptable and it is never okay. And the church needs to, both in a systematic way and in an individual way, always speak on behalf of those who would encounter that kind of abuse of this command. That's incumbent upon the church. But my, here's my response as to why is that not a reason then the abuses that have come about as a result of texts like this one, why is that not a reason then to just kind of reject it wholesale and just to say, well, then you know what? It's, it, we, we don't need it. Let's just get rid of it or do something other than what we seem to be told to do. Let's do something different with it. I think the answer to that is you can probably predict. I think it's a relatively simple one. Is that we need to avoid throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right? Or maybe to put it in more technical terms, what we call avoiding the flaw of the excluded middle. Now here's what that means, is that on one hand, uh, you, have, you, know, you have abuses of a, of a statement, of a teaching, of a biblical command, right? And so the reaction to that, or the, the thought about then, is then, then there is no version of that command that could ever be lived out that wouldn't be abusive. And do you see the flaw in that reasoning? That because something has been abused doesn't mean it always must be abused, that this is the only version of the application of this. The middle ground in there is the concept that it is possible to obey this command in a way that creates thriving for husbands and wives. Do you follow me? So let, let's not make that error of the flaw of the excluded middle, which as you read most scholars, to be honest, um, they begin often, in reje- if they're going to reject this command, they begin from the standpoint of believing that it's just not possible for this command to ever be something good, to ever be lived out in a way that would be life-giving, but perhaps can only lead to abuse, and so there's a rejection of it. And I, I just want to point that out, that the answer to that is to say, don't, don't miss, right, that there's a version of a biblical marriage and obedience to these commands that leads to joy. At least to thriving, perhaps you don't see that now, but don't don't eliminate it as a possibility. The second objection that I, that is often found when you encounter this text is that our gifting can seem at odds with our role. And I think this is a really interesting and a good a good thing to think through. I, I actually really love this objection. Our gifting seems at odds with our role. One of the things that sometimes uh, when people read this, make a wrongheaded assumption about is that it's somehow teaching that women don't have a leadership gift. that That God wouldn't somehow impart that to women. And that's just completely false. There are some... Amazing leaders as women. I love Elizabeth Elliot, who um, who teaches at the seminary level. And if you know her stories, missionary, her husband was killed in the mission field. Just a really, really godly woman uh, who would read this text and agree with kind of what I'm going to bring to you today. But one of the things she recognizes is that she is a, she uh, she has said outright, "I am a more gifted leader than most of the men I'm around all the time." And the reason is because I've suffered more, I've lived longer, I have endured more hardship for the Lord, and he has put me in positions uh, to to live this out and to have these experiences in such a way that I, I actually am a really gifted leader. She understands that and she has that gift from the Lord. But she also understands that in certain places and ways, God has also prescribed a role for her that is different than her giftedness or not completely contingent upon her giftedness. So here's, here's the interesting thing. Don't ever make the assumption that role and giftedness must always go hand in hand. Giftedness is one way that God guides us towards roles that he has for us. But I'm sure all of us have encountered times where we are called by God to do things that we are not gifted to do. Think of Moses in the Old Testament with his speech impediment, and God says, you're going to be my mouthpiece, and why does God use people who are not gifted at something to do that thing? Because then who gets the credit? God does, and that's why God calls the Moses of the world. By the way, we shouldn't assume when we see this, right, the assumption that is often made is that uh, every man is going to love this text because it says, wives, submit to your husbands, right? As if husbands love your wives is not a daunting statement, particularly when we understand that Ephesians tells us, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now men, tell me, if you woke up every day and said, how do I love my wife today in such a way that I will lay down my interests, my desires, my designs so that she can thrive? If I did that every day, is that a daunting calling? Yeah. And ladies, Let's recognize that it's a daunting calling to say, I'm gonna trust my husband and submit to him and be out of control. That's daunting as well. Neither of these are easy commands. We shouldn't assume that every guy relishes the responsibility that comes with headship. Because to be honest, most of us do not. Some of us don't feel very gifted for it. There are many marriages where wives are more gifted leaders than husbands. And yet that doesn't mean that the wife, presumed, takes the role of headship. And the husband then takes the role of helper because God has not prescribed that our giftedness would always dictate our role. That's a key thing to to understand because, in many marriages, wives, as I said, are more gifted as leaders, and yet the husband is still called to be the head in this marriage, and the wife is still called to be the helper. And at least a part of the reasoning behind that is that God is able to bring you into a role and bring about his glory through your fulfillment of that role, whether or not you are the most gifted to walk it out and to live it out. That's just the reality. By the way, husbands who are gifted leaders If you have that gift of leadership, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you have a leadership gift means that you will do this well by just exercising your giftedness. You will fail every time. Because no one fulfills the command to come and die just by being a gifted leader. It may mean you have some skill sets that lend themselves to doing this well, but it's not giftedness. It's submission to the call of God and trusting in his power to bring about this role through you that will enable you to do it. Does that make sense? And It's a valid objection, but but let's think that through, that role and giftedness are not always hand in hand. The third objection is this. These commands seem at odd with the biblical teaching about the equality of men and women. Right, I read this and I think, wives, submit to your husbands. But haven't I been reading all through the scriptures about how men and women are equal in value before God? And the answer is yes, you have. Yes, you have. And let's let's talk about that for a moment. Let's go all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. And when God decides he wants to make human beings, he says, I wanna make them in my image. And he makes a male first, Adam first. But then because that's not enough image bearing for him, he says, I'm gonna also make a woman to come alongside and she's gonna bear my image as well. And both will be completely made in my image as if to say Male alone and female alone don't represent or carry the image of God well enough. I need them both. I need femininity and I need masculinity and I desire to have both. And so they are equal in value. Then you can just fast forward all the way into the ministry of Jesus and think about the tenderness, the care, the the dignity with which he engages women that in his day and age was not common. And for Jesus, and, and the beauty of the way that he engages the scriptures, the, while people in our day and age look at some of the things that the scriptures say about what was the relationship between men and women, look at it and say, that is so out of step with a modern world. One of the things that is missed quite often is how radical, how radically God-honoring and valuing towards women uh, the, the New Testament church and the teaching of the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus was, that it was radically different than the world around it. Then you look into the New Testament church and the founding of the church and you see that it's women who are playing a crucial role in the propagation of the gospel. They're the first to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. When all the men are scared, where are the women? They're at the cross. They're at the grave. They're the ones running back to the the locked door room to say, he is risen. They're the first to declare it, to have on their mouths the message of the gospel. Somebody say, that's good, right? Right? And then they are powerful in the early church in being those who are, who are helping shape the message of the gospel and get it out. Uh, they are those to whom Paul often is rejected in synagogues. And where does he go next? He goes to just the common places of the culture and it's often women who are the first to respond to the message of the gospel. In almost every city that Paul goes to, it's women who are first responding to the gospel much faster than men. Somebody, there's a joke in there somewhere, Right, But it's just true. So the, women are are just really, exalt is the wrong word, but, but the view of women in the scriptures is so rich. It's so high as these co-image bearers with men uh, uh, of the image of God. You get teachings like Paul himself in Galatians chapter three, verse 20. Same Paul who just wrote, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Same Paul, Galatians chapter three. In Christ, in Christ, there's not slave or free. There's not Jew or Gentile. There's not male or female. There's not man or woman, right? But all are one in Christ. He's not saying there's no such thing as a woman and there's no such thing as a man, right? He's not dumb. But what he is saying is all those categories that the world uses to say whether you're valuable or lack value, all those categories are no longer meaningful because of this, They don't go away, the categories don't go away, but your value is in Christ having redeemed you. And you are now all of you who were in need of saving. He saved by grace, through faith, and because he did it, you all should recognize that you are equal in value before the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are equal in value. So that's the strong and clear teaching of the New Testament, again and again, well, of the whole Bible, again and again and again, the the immense value. So how does that teaching about the equality in value of men and women, how does that line up then with this text where you hear wives submit to your husband? Isn't that out of step? And the answer to that is that things that are equal in value do not necessarily always have the same role, right? And you and I encounter this all the time in our, in our day lives. Employers are not more valuable than employees, are they? And yet they have different roles. Constantly we see people of equal value stepping into different roles. That's one response. I think the more important response is this, though, church, and really hear me on this. The only reason I think that we see it as problematic or somehow disjointed that you would have a scriptures teaching again and again the equality of men and women in value and then difference in role, headship and helper, is that we think one of those roles is more important than the other. But they're not. And the evidence of that we're gonna see in just a moment, and then we see that Jesus took on both of those roles. He took on the role both of submissive helper, and he took on the role of head. Both are daunting. Both are hard. Both require the Holy Spirit and his guidance. And when you see that, I think it's a, it's a perspective shifter, at least it was for me, a perspective shifter on this. So let me go to the next one and then, like I said, we're gonna come back to that. The fourth reason, the fourth objection here, I think is, is that they just seem like the result of a backwards culture. And when you see a command like this, it just seems like, we in a modern day, we know better now. Like we, we, we are better at, at men and women, right? And there's some things going on recently in our culture and day and age that would say we are absolutely not better at men and women and the relationship between them. But the reality is, I think sometimes we look and we go, well that's a, that, that was from a backwards culture, and Paul's a backwards guy, and so he's writing this. Well one, we've just seen that the scriptures really raised the value of women in a way that was unique and powerful. So is it really, Is it really wise then to say this same scripture, which purports equal in image bearing, equal in value, but different in role, is it then wise to look at that and go, oh, that same scripture is now just purporting some cultural thing from back in the day that we're not going to transport into our cultural day and age? Or is it possible that this same scriptures, which said, women are of equal value with men, still sees them as equally valuable and yet prescribes roles that are unique and different within marriage and that there's a thriving to be found in them. Do you follow me? Okay, so the other thing to see there, I think in response to that idea, which by the way, when you read the scholarship on this uh, and the way maybe those who who would think differently about these commands, the only way to get around these commands is essentially the way that's used most often is to say, they don't apply any longer because that was just for that culture and that day. And now we live in a different culture and a different day, and, we, and essentially we kind of know better. Now, one, I want to say we should be very careful about assuming that modern culture is better than ancient culture. We should be very careful about that. Now, every culture has strengths and weaknesses. Every culture has things that honor God and doesn't honor God. So it is possible that perhaps in this area, in the modern day, we are better than they were back then. That, that is very possible. And I think there's probably some ways that that's true. But I just want to caution you against always assuming newer is better, right? And people with gray hair should say amen to me. I mean, that's right. right? But also, here's the challenge with that. Like, okay, this was a command just for, just for back then and it no longer applies now. The real problem is that every time you encounter this in the scripture, or almost every time I should say, you encounter these commands about husbands as head and, and wife as helper, Almost every time you encounter them, they're not rooted in, hey, this makes cultural sense in the day in which we live. They're rooted in God's design and the very creation of man and woman. So we always go back prior to sin ever entering the world. Paul goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he says again and again, this is why these roles exist. It's because God designed male, he designed female, he delights in them both, he considers them equally valuable, and he has prescribed different roles for them. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to touch on that in just a minute. So the reason that objection, I think, kind of falls falls empty is because when Paul's rooting it back in in the very origins of the creation of male and female, of man and woman, what he's doing is saying, so this transcends whatever culture you're in and whatever day you live in, these commands about husbands and wives, they transcend all of that. They, They cut across and through every culture. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be lived out exactly the same in every culture. We'll, talk, we'll talk, talk, talk about that here in just a moment. Okay, so those are the objections that I wanted to speak to. Now, let, let's look at the next thing. Why are these commands good? Why are they good? So if up to this point you've been not with me, <laughs> stick with me. Because here's really the, the crux of, our, of the word to us today. The first reason, and really the most important one, why is this a good command? Why are these two good commands? is that they display the beauty of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. You see, the thing we see again and again in scripture is that marriage is meant to be a demonstration of the way Christ relates to his church. So he calls the church His bride, and he says he's our husband, all of us who are in Christ. And he says, church, you are to submit to me. I'm your head, you're my body. There's a oneness in that, by the way. Ephesians does a beautiful job of painting this, where he both means he is our authority. He is our head, which means he is our authority. But he also says, you're my body, and you're, you're part of me, which for the king of the universe and the creator of all things, to say you human beings are, who are my church are part of me is an intimate relationship unlike any other. Do you see that, the beauty of that? Which is why then he goes on in Ephesians to say, husbands and wives, you are one flesh. Husbands, you are head as Christ is head of the church and you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. So let's just be really plain about this, men. The first command in Colossians chapter three, wives, submit to your husbands, is never meant to be separated, not for one single second. Is it ever meant to be separated from the second command, which is what, husbands? Love your wives. And as Paul will say it in Ephesians chapter five, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Just fathom that. I know I said this already, but fathom that for a minute. I spent all week thinking about what would it look like if every day I got up and said, my job today is to figure out how to die to my own selfishness so that Amanda can thrive. That's my job today. And all too often, I don't do it well. I, I, I feel like a fish out of water sometimes trying to fulfill this command. It is daunting to take up the responsibility by the way of being the head of bearing the responsibility husbands you will be responsible if you are married you will be responsible for how you lead you will be held to account by God did you love your wife as Christ loves the church so that a watching world would see how good my headship is how good my authority is or did you abuse it Or did you use it so that you could go catch the game with the guys and make sure your wife got all the housework done? Or did you use it to reinforce some lame cultural stereotype of what this is supposed to look like, that it really has nothing to do with the fulfillment of this biblical command of husbands being the head and wives being the helper? How did you live this out? The the simplest thing we can say when it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, is that That means so many things. Chief among them is you are the first to die. Not just in a willingness to lay down your life and take a bullet for your wife, but you are the first to die to your selfishness. You have to be the first to die to getting what you want. You have to be the first to die in every circumstance in your home. That's your job. You die first when you don't understand why your wife won't yield ground to your opinion on something, your job is not to say, I will have my way. Your job is to figure out how you will die to getting your way. The command to husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church is not contingent upon wives fulfilling the command to submit to their husbands. You husbands must obey whether your wives obey this command or not. Do you hear that? You must obey because it is the Lord who has commanded you whether your wife holds up her end of the bargain or not. The second half of that, wives, wives submit to your husbands. It's hard to speak about this as a man. I I'm not in your shoes. whenever the scriptures talk about submit it doesn't mean a mindless subjection to the whims but it's a voluntary loving yielding a voluntary loving yielding and we'll talk about how this should play out practically here in just a minute but that's what i want you to hear and understand is that what's at stake right that if what is at stake in the obedience to these commands is the world seeing Christ and his church manifested in marriages. And, and it, it's not manifested, if I can be so bold as to say, it's not manifested through the idea of just mutual submission. Well, we both submit to one another. That doesn't display a head and a helper. That doesn't display Christ and a church. That doesn't display authority and submission as God intends it to be displayed in marriage. There is something about these roles that must be lived out, I am convinced, if the world is going to see the goodness of Christ. That doesn't mean there isn't a mutuality to our love and sacrifice for one another. There, of course, is. You see both commands. They're never meant to be separated from one another. Do you see them, church? They're both there. They're never an excuse for demeaning or degrading or abuse. They're never for that. But the representation is so necessary. Now, I love Kathy Keller. I'm going to borrow a lot from her. Um, Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller is her husband. He's a pastor and author. And uh, they wrote a book together called The Meaning of Marriage. Highly recommend it to you. There's some good thoughts on this subject matter in that book. She also has a good little read. It's a pamphlet, maybe 30, 40 pages, called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Uh, and Kathy has a lot of wise things to say here. I love her perspective on this. And she, speaking to women more than anyone, she says, she says, I will have women say to me, well, why does he get to be the head? Right? Which, yes, some of you are thinking that, right? Why Why is he the head? Right? And the answer to that, because here's what men do sometimes, is you think, you think that you are the head because something uh, there's something more intrinsically valuable about your masculinity than about your wife's femininity, which is why you get to be the head, and that is a lie. Do you know why husbands are the head? Because God decided that he wanted to do that, and he doesn't tell us beyond that. Now, I know some of you are like, that's a lame reason, right? right but God doesn't have to, God doesn't anywhere in the scriptures say, here's why I chose. He could flip this. You understand that, right? He could have said, okay, I'll make wives the head and husbands, I'll have them be the helper. He could have done that if he chose to. He just didn't choose to do that. He could have done it because they're equal in value, because the roles are equal in value. That's what I really want you to see, how equal in value these roles are. Head is not better than helper. Do you, yes, it's not. We are so misguided in thinking that they are. are, They're equal roles. One implies authority, yes. But that authority is not better than the role of helper, okay? Now that's why I wanna to get to the next point then because that leads us then to the next thing. So I love Kathy's, I just really appreciate her thinking on that. It was a, that was a good nugget for me this week. The second thing we see is that, uh, why these commands are good is that they enable us to identify with Christ in unique ways. They enable us to identify with Christ in unique ways. Now this is what I mean. Both, Head and helper are roles that Christ has himself played. And so when we understand that we have a gift in this calling to be either head or helper in our marriage, what we understand is I'm getting a gift of identifying with something Christ has done, something he is. And I get to know something about my Lord through fulfilling this role. And then if I don't fulfill it, I won't know that thing about him. So, wives, in your submission to your husbands, you get to to know and identify with the submission of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to the Father. When he said, not my will, but yours. Where you send me, I will go. What you call me to do, I will do. That, That submission of Christ to the Father, when he takes on that role, what beauty What joy is found for us in it? And you get to identify with him and then know him more as a result. Husbands, when you take up the daunting role of self-sacrificing, first to die love, you are submitting yourself to walk in the role that Christ had as the head of his church who laid down his life for her. So you you are partaking of something that Christ is, as the one who sacrificed for us so that we might be purchased and washed and made holy and redeemed. And you get to identify with that and to know that, and it's a daunting call, and it's a hard call. But when you take it up and submit to doing it, you will know him more. Do you see what I mean when I say you get a unique identification with Jesus through these roles? There's a gift, there's a joy in it to be found. The third reason why these commands are good is that they remind us they remind us that men and women need each other to see who God is. They remind us that men and women need each other to see who God is. Again, go back to what we said in Genesis. God creates male, he creates female because he wants image bearers that are both masculine and feminine and that both, that both reflect that. Look, one of the realities is men, we don't get women, right? Yes, and ladies, you don't get men. I mean, how often have you, why are they thinking that way? I don't get it. Why, are they, why would they make that decision? That made no sense. I think on a weekly basis, my wife wonders why I made about 10 different decisions that I made, right? And some of that, some of it's my stupidity, some of it is my masculinity, right? And there's aspects of that that are hard for her to grasp and vice versa. But here's what happens. Because we have a very hard time with what we call, what, what theologian Miroslav Volf calls the other, embracing the other, someone who's not like us, because we have a hard time with the other, what we do is we dismiss and degrade the other so that we tend to, because we don't get each other, we tend to then look at one another and go, well, you're wrong or silly or dumb for thinking or being that way. But do you know, what, you know what it does when you understand that God designed both men and women in his image and both bear his image and that neither one alone was enough, what it does is rather than demeaning or degrading or dismissing something about my wife's femininity, rather than going, I don't get it, what I do is go, I still don't get it, but it reveals something about God and I wanna know him. And so I value the difference rather than demeaning the difference. Do you see it? That's what's so powerful and profound about men and women. When we, play, when we live in the roles of husband and wife as God is talking about them here, we get to experience the, the need for one another so that we would see more of God and treasure him. That's three reasons why these commands, I think, are such a gift. All right, now let's talk about how we should apply them in the, in the few minutes that we have remaining here. I'm just gonna give you a few thoughts. Number one, how do we apply this? Remember that the roles of head and helper are established by God, which means they're not negotiable. They're not switchable, right? But the exact way we live out those roles is not prescribed by God. Here's what I mean by that. Elizabeth Elliott, again, talked about this. When she lived with the Aka Indians in South America, one of the things she recognized is that their understanding of what men did and what women did were very different than the ones that we have here in the United States. And as a result, she came to understand that it wasn't some stereotypical, you know, circa 1950s version of the wife stays home and she cooks and she cleans and the husband goes to work and he does this and that. It's not some... American version of what you think it means to be head and what you think it means to be helper that should be played out, but rather something that you must come to together as husband and wife, starting from the understanding, I as the husband am the head. That implies authority. It certainly does, you know, it implies that my role is to be the first to die. That's, That's what I know about being the head. And helper implies that my wife must submit to me that doesn't mean a minus subjection to my whims, but the exact way in which we live that out must be discussed and mulled over and thought through together so that we figure out the expression of that. As an example, of in my own marriage, right, my wife does stay home with the kids. That's a more stereotypical version of what maybe a helper, fulfilling the role of helper looks like, but she's also the one who handles all of our finances because she's way better at it than I am, right? And I'm not a dummy. So, The reality of what does this look like has to be uh, worked through together in a marriage as as you seek to figure out, well, how do we play off of one another? How do we work together? It's not meant to just reinforce old stereotypes that are perhaps nothing more than cultural stereotypes and not actually anything having to do with head and helper. Now, that said, there are some helpful themes in Scripture because... I just said to you, basically the scriptures are pretty much silent, other than saying, husbands, you are the head, wives, you are the helper. Other than saying that, they're pretty silent on exactly how that role, those roles are supposed to be lived out. So now you're thinking, well, that's no help at all, right? Like, tell me more about how to live, like, live out these roles, right? The reason it doesn't give you more is because it, it, it is a thing that transcends, it's a command that transcends all cultures and so he's not just gonna give you some cultural version and because he wants you to walk with him in the application of this. That said, there are themes that whenever the scriptures tend to talk about headship, they talk in three terms, three themes come up whenever headship is talked about. To be a head is to lead, it is to provide and it is to protect Lead, provide, protect. Those are the three major themes that you'll see come up again and again when headship is discussed. When this idea of helping or being a helper is discussed, and this is a role that, again, Jesus takes. God himself is said to take this role more often. The same word in Genesis 2, where God says, I'll make a helper for Adam. It's the word ezer or ezer, and it means strong helper. The idea is literally military reinforcements because they're about to lose the battle. Some of you are getting why that's funny. God himself is most commonly referred to as the one who is our ezer, our helper. And this term is then applied to Eve as he creates her. I want to make a strong helper for Adam. And I've just totally lost my place based upon that. Let me return to my notes, sorry. Sorry. Oh, yes, Uh, generally, when that term of helper is expressed, it is through gently supporting, encouraging, and nurturing. So leading, protecting, providing, supporting, encouraging, nurturing. Those are the themes you'll see as you examine the scriptures when they talk about this idea of head and helper. Third thing about living this out practically, a husband's authority should always and only be used to serve his wife, not himself. Anytime a husband uses his authority as the head of his marriage to do anything other than serve his wife, anytime it's used to serve your own self-interest, you're not doing it in accordance with Scripture. You are in disobedience. Husbands, do you understand? This is deeply important. The command that you would be the head of your home to love your wife as Christ loves the church requires that 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 role always and only be used for the good of your wife, for her upbuilding, for her strengthening in service to her, and never for your self-interest, never just to get your way. Now look, that said, That said, there will always be moments in a marriage, there will always be moments in a marriage where you discuss things and discuss them and discuss them and cannot come to agreement. And in those moments, it is the role of the head to make a final decision. That's what I would say to you. Some of you will disagree with me. I think that's what it means to be head. I'll tell you what Kathy Keller said about this. I found it to be very helpful. Kathy said that when she and Tim were called to plant the church in New York City that he led for, 30 plus years and which has had global impact. When, when he was called to that, he was a professor at a seminary in Philadelphia and she did not want to go. In fact, she thought it was a horrible idea. She said, I, did, I disagreed. I did not think we should go and plant this church. But it was evident to me that Tim wanted to plant it. And so after much discussion and me and Kathy expressing why she didn't think it was wise and why Tim thinking, I think we should do this and that God is calling us. She said, after a while, Tim looked at me and he said, well, if you don't wanna go, then we won't go. And not in a passive-aggressive way. He just said, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. As a man seeking to, I think, serve his wife. And do you know what Kathy said she said to him? Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. You will not abdicate your role as the head of our home. My job is to go before the Lord until he can make me able to follow you with joy. Your job is to lead us. You choose. You decide. You lead. I thought that was compelling. And I'll I'll give you the reverse. You know, when Amanda and I were married, uh, less than a year, maybe less than definitely less than two years, maybe less than a year, I had this weird season where God kept in in more ways than I can tell you, kept bringing San Francisco to mind. And I thought, I think we might be supposed to move to San Francisco. To the degree that we actually went out there, toured the city, looked around. I had an offer from a church to come and work out in San Francisco. And I thought, I think we're supposed to go. And as we went, Amanda had said, kind of the same conversation as Kathy and Tim had. She said, I don't think we're supposed to go. I I just don't think we're supposed to go. And we talked about it. We talked about it a lot. Um, And I said, okay, I don't know. And so, But here's what Amanda said. Amanda said, I'll follow you wherever. I'll follow you wherever. And I, as I prayed about that and thought about that and and wrestled with the weight of making this decision for my family, uh, for us, having really received what I thought was wisdom from Amanda, did not feel strong enough in my conviction that we were called that I thought we should go. So we did not go. That's That's just an alternate example. But the point is that there's a lot of mutuality and a lot of discussion, a lot of wrestling that goes into that together. Do you see it? The Last thing, the last thing, and then we're, we're out of time here, so. The last thing that I wanna say, and this is important, is that a wife should not give unconditional obedience to her husband. Here's what I mean by that. A wife should not give unconditional obedience to her husband. One, the command wives submit to your husbands is not the command obey unconditionally. The, the thing that is, I think, uh, without stating it, is absolutely evident in the text where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, is unless he's leading you to disobey who? The Lord. The only person to any of us owe unquestioning obedience is God himself. And wherever a husband would use his authority to abuse physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, Whatever a husband sexually, wherever a husband would use his authority to bring about abuse, a wife is not submitting to her husband to say, okay, well then I just have to allow this to take place. If your husband is physically abusive to you, the way you submit to him is you turn him into the legal authorities so that he can get the help he needs and he needs to come underneath that authority. He needs to be made right. And you don't, Submit to your husband appropriately by just going, okay, it's okay that he's doing this. It's never okay. I hope that's been very evident in the way I'm speaking to you husbands. It's never okay. So wives, you are to never unconditionally obey your husbands. You are to submit to their authority as your head. Husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. You are to love your wife as Christ loves the church leading in obedience to the Lord. So as I said, I believe there's a joy to be found in these commands. There's a joy to be found in them. That's been my hope and my prayer this week. I know some of you will disagree with, with uh, what I've offered you here today, and that's okay. That's okay. But I'll invite you to wrestle with the scriptures, to wrestle with them. Don't just dismiss a biblical command. See the goodness of it. Fight to see the goodness of the command and to understand God's intention in giving it before dismissing Before dismissing, he intends it for your good and joy and thriving and for the good and joy of the world around us that needs to see husbands and wives who can fulfill and live out the mandates of Scripture with joy.